Hi and welcome back to episode 73 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast and today I have um, Professor Eric Rawson. Hi Eric, how are you doing? Hello, I'm doing well. Excellent. Well look, I, I really appreciate um, you uh, devoting some of your time today. I know, I know you're going to be very busy um, but for folks that don't yet know who you are because uh, you're uh, you've not been on this podcast before yet i'm sure you'll be a regular um perhaps you could tell folks a bit more about yourself and um and what you're up to sure i'm a professor and chair of the exercise science department at bloomsburg university of pennsylvania in the united states uh, i did my doctoral training uh, at the university of massachusetts in amherst and uh I would say that the, the bulk of my research in, involves the interactions between uh, nutrition and, and skeletal muscle, although lately I've been dabbling in brain metabolism. And uh, I, I think my, my research uh, has uh, taken me down a, a long road where I've, I've studied the nutrient creatine quite a bit. Yeah, and of course you'll you'll be familiar with uh, Craig Sell, Professor Craig Sell, who um, um, obviously has done a lot of work in that area initially under um, Professor Roger Harris, who I'm, I, I was very honoured to have um, Roger Harris uh, do a lecture for us on creatine uh, a couple of years ago when I arranged the first ISSN International London Conference. And um, I, it was amazing to hear Roger Harris speak, but also I, he, he sort of assumed that everyone in the audience was a sort of postdoctoral level <laughs> genius. It was just an, the most amazing masterclass. Um, and, uh, and in fact, uh, uh, the reason why I'm so enthusiastic about this is because uh, creatine is, is what we're going to talk about today. Um, but before I, I get us to talk about creatine, um, you know, uh, listeners to this podcast will probably think, hang on. I, I, I think we've already heard a podcast on creatine. And yes, we've done a creatine podcast back in, uh, I think it was October 2014 with, with Craig Sale. Um, but the reason why, Eric, I wanted to get you on is because um, creatine is very well known uh, for its uh, performance-related uh, um, uh, effects, particularly physical performance. But I have described over a number of episodes in the past my my like of the term performance nutrition as opposed to sports or sports and exercise nutrition because I don't like this idea that us as sports and exercise nutritionists or researchers, you know, our work is exclusively for the benefit of athletes, whereas actually all sorts of human beings on varying levels are looking for optimal performance. Um, young people... Um, older people, um, business people, you know, performance has interesting connotations, which our work lends itself incredibly well to. I mean, just before we even get into creatine and how it can fit into those different areas, um, Eric, I'd sort of be interested to know how you feel about what I just said about that whole idea of, of, of nutrition and sports nutrition, not just being for sports. Oh, I, I think that's very insightful, and uh, I've attempted to uh, drop the word sport from uh, many of my lectures and, and many of my uh, classes uh, because I think performance nutrition or, or exercise nutrition or nutrition for the physically active, uh, I, I think these are all um, 
better descriptors of what we're trying to do. You know, I, I don't know that I can live up to uh, Craig Sales' standard, but uh, what's interesting is, is how much uh, Craig and I overlap uh, and also how little we overlap as well. You know, most of uh, my work has uh, focused on uh, nutritional supplementation in the elderly, mm. so improving human performance uh, in older adults uh, and uh, more recently in improving brain performance, which applies to sports, it applies to the elderly, uh, it applies to patient populations as well. So I, I think we're in a, a fantastic place right now because we're looking at performance nutrition as it applies to virtually every segment of the population. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I And I've said this in previous podcasts, just, just how excited I feel about this, that, you know, that this idea that the work that we do either as researchers or as practitioners and people who just generally use this information for the benefit of human performance, you know, that, that understanding of human performance, um, I'll go ahead and use a C word straight away, you know, in context um, is incredibly um, interesting because there are so many different people, you know, we vary so much in terms of our likes and dis dislikes, but ultimately, you know, we've all got well, most of us have got two legs, two hands, etc. And we all we all need to try and perform one way or the other, whether it's delivering a, a meeting, you know, 24 hours later in a different country in a different time zone where we need our bodies and our minds to focus at its best. Or, you know, uh, athletes obviously travel across different time zones. It's not just about getting their muscles to function. We need them to function, be alert, um, yeah be at their best um you know I, I think as we as we all age i'm starting to age unfortunately um now and and i'm starting to recognize for, for my own personal needs and that of my my father who's in his 80s you know that there are there are performance things that have got nothing to do with them being athletes or him being an athlete or me being an athlete but there's things that i'm learning in my own studies in these podcasts that have nothing to do really with athletes. They have so much to do with just getting us to perform at our best. And um, creatine is definitely one of those really interesting areas. And like you say, there's there's actually a really, really interesting growth of, of research um, in various parts of the world. Um, obviously in the UK and the US, there's a, there's a great deal of work. There's a, a international uh uh, uh, sort of getting together of experts from time to time in um, is it in um, Germany or Bavaria or somewhere? Yes, the we the creating conference was in uh, Germany this past year. We were in Cambridge, England, uh, five years before that. I'm not sure where where we're headed next. Uh, hopefully, someplace warm. I, I think uh, maybe they'll host it in Brazil. Uh, but it is uh, a gathering of all of the world's uh, leading researchers on, on creatine. And you would think that that would be a, a very uh, focused conference, that there wouldn't be much to talk about. You, you know, some, someone said to me years ago uh, that they didn't understand the interest in creatine because it was only involved in one chemical reaction in the whole body. And uh, I thought about that, and I still think about it today. And, and if you uh, attended the creatine conference, you would find uh, researchers on creatine and uh, pregnancy, creatine and cancer, creatine and aging, 
Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, uh, you know, uh, as well as sports science and, and on and on and on. The, the diversity of the research is, is fantastic. Yeah. I actually, uh, I was very lucky to attend a lecture by Mark Tarnopolsky uh, a couple of years ago on the more clinical aspects of, of creatine. And that, that was mind boggling. Um, and I guess between that and a conversation I had with uh, Roger Harris in an airport once just really blew my mind about where some of this stuff is going. Um, sure. So that's what I want to get into, really. So um, I know there's all sorts of papers out there. Uh, the folks that will go back to my earlier podcast with Craig Sell, w- w- there was a number of references for that, but one of which included um, the uh, the ISSN's uh, review of creatine, although that's that's a bit out of date now, but that's a useful reference. Um, but um, there was um, a good paper that I read of yours um, that you were the senior author on in um, from back in 2011, the um, in sickness and in health, the widespread application of creatine supplementation that was published in amino acids. I, that was a really interesting paper because it's a nice combination of the various. Um, applications of creatine from performance all the way through to health and that's one of the things that I, I was thinking of using to guide me in this conversation with you so why why don't we open this up a bit with just a quick overview um, as to what creatine actually is okay uh, so creatine as many of your listeners know is a, a non-essential nutrient um, most of us do uh, an adequate job synthesizing it in our body, and uh, many of us uh, do an adequate job ingesting it in our diet. But since it's almost entirely contained in meat uh, in the diet, we, we do have um, instances of people not ingesting enough creatine. Uh, this, of course, would be vegetarians, but also uh, the elderly who uh, tend to eat less meat as they age due to uh, chewing reasons or, or economic reasons or health reasons, uh, there are segments of the population that are, are, are very low creatine eaters because they're low meat eaters. Um, uh, you know, whether we're relying on synthesis or diet or, or combination, you know, almost all of the creatine in our bodies is, is stored in our skeletal muscle where it's involved in uh, energy metabolism. And then uh, a small amount of it is stored in the brain where it's also involved in uh, energy metabolism. And yeah, yeah. Sorry, you just mentioning because that was the one area that I think you know a lot of people when they think about creatine and they look at you know what it is and how it actually works, which we'll get more into again in a second. But it's this idea that um, creatine isn't just for muscles. Um, there's another part of the body that also is heavily involved in in energy production. Maybe you could just focus a bit more on that quickly. Oh, sure. The, the brain takes up about 20% of, of resting metabolic rate, brain energy metabolism. It's, it's uh, pound for pound a very energy demanding tissue. Uh, and uh, I think anything that can alter cerebral energetics is uh, of interest. Uh, and that counts for uh, patient populations. And, and if you think about it, it, it should probably count for elite athletes as well. You know, we as scientists, our job is to be as focused as possible. And uh, some of us have dived inside a muscle cell and 
uh, are looking at certain genes or, or certain reactions and, and we have uh, forgotten how to look at the body as a whole, you know, and, and to say that the, the brain is not involved in, in elite athletic performance or, or in the, the physical activity of uh, an older adult is, is um, short-sighted. <laughs> it's a narrow view. So, so cerebral energetics, and if we can modify that with, uh, you know, an inexpensive, safe nutritional intervention, uh, we're on to something great here. Yeah, I, I'm really pleased you mentioned that statement, actually, of, of, of we don't spend enough time thinking about, you know, the, the science that we discuss from the perspective of the whole body, everything combined together. Um, you know, we're sort of greater than the sum of its parts type sort of concept. But, you know, a lot of science is discussed from a very mechanistic point of view. It's very isolated. It has to be because that's how research is done. You need to control for as many variables as possible. But it gets it gets uh, very out of context, particularly when we start thinking about how this would affect the whole body. And more importantly, the relevance of that to in this example the performance of of the whole human in a real world scenario and and i think that um the production of energy is is clearly of interest to to sports science but it's always very much about one specific part of the the body um how about the production of energy from both a muscle and a brain perspective in, in terms of creatine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you know, the, we, when, when we talk about creatine, um, like you mentioned, you know, it's always from the perspective of, of just uh, muscular performance. Um, if we're looking um, at some of the work on how it affects brain function, um, it's just about brain function. But the synergy between the two is also going to be important. Yeah, and, I, and I, I think this is, while we're just getting people interested in... Um, nutrition in the brain, uh, there's even fewer people who are realizing that we can't, we can't look at either, of, either muscle or brain in isolation. And then there's two wonderful studies, and uh, Roger Harris was uh, a co-author on them, Terry McMorris was the lead author, and they combined, um, they, what they did was they sleep-deprived research volunteers, and uh, they had placebo-supplemented or creatine-supplemented subjects. And they induced fatigue, not just with sleep deprivation, but with exercise as well. So it was cognitively and physically draining. And the decrement in cognitive processing, which we would have expected, uh, was actually uh, attenuated in, in those who ingested creatine. So it, it demonstrates to you, you know, that uh, physical fatigue and, and mental fatigue uh, are, are often combined, certainly in a real-world situation and, and absolutely in an athletic situation. This was just two nice laboratory investigations where physical and mental fatigue were overlapped, and, and creatine was uh, a, a great adjunct to preventing that decline. Yeah. The reason why I'm interested in that is in a, um, the previous podcast of this one with Dr. Mark Russell, we were discussing the importance of half-time. Um, in team sports and also delved a bit into the concept of extra time um, and the reason why certain strategies are particularly important at that point um, um, you know we're talking about things like uh, glycogen availability uh, blood sugar 
concentrations and those sorts of things because amongst other things um, significant levels of glycogen depletion will ultimately impact um, brain function so you start losing it from the muscles but obviously there's a whole body situation here and and that will affect not just physical um, you know sheer power and force um, and movement type stuff it's also going to affect decision making well so too um, is the idea with creatine as you start to deplete creatine um, there is going to be potentially this impact on the brain as well right oh absolutely now I, I don't know that you know we can actually uh, deplete a, a healthy brain of, of creatine that would be very difficult to demonstrate uh, and, and that's one of the, the problems with this small body of literature is that uh, some labs have a certain capability and an, another lab has a completely different capability and we're trying to piece together a, a story here about uh, cerebral energetics but um, you know at, at this point in time there are I think uh, 11 published papers on uh, the effects of creatine supplementation on, on cognitive processing and, and nine of them have showed positive effects Wow! so um, you know we're we're on to something here now. The the difficulty is that uh, there's a, a few papers that have actually measured increases in brain creatine and phosphocreatine with supplementation, but they're not the studies that have also measured cognitive processing. The the people who have access to the magnets aren't necessarily the people who are doing the, the cognitive work, and, and vice versa. Uh, but but I think it's it, it's very very promising to see that many papers come out in a brief period of time uh, all with uh, or the majority of with uh, positive findings. I, I find creatine metabolism very analogous to glycogen metabolism in terms of um, it's a natural component of the diet. Uh, we should be focusing on, on keeping our muscle and brain levels adequate if we want to perform at our best. Yeah, I, it's fascinating um, where this is all going. I think, I mean, without a doubt, the, the, the next few years and probably, well, without any doubt, the next few decades is going to really start to come up with some, some interesting stuff. I mean, I, I was discussing with Asker Yukendrup um, a couple of podcasts ago, you know, how despite, you know, all the papers you can find on various topics on PubMed, for example, I mean, essentially we are still in a extreme level of infancy in terms of our knowledge in, in this stuff, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was just saying to my students the other day, this is the youngest uh, area or the youngest subdiscipline of uh, sports science or, or exercise science. Uh, and that's exciting, but you, you're also able to quickly find some large gaps in the literature uh, and uh, you can dive right in and, and start conducting research, but you, you definitely don't have all of the answers you want uh, at this point in time. Uh, even on a, a nutrient that was discovered in 1832, like creatine, we still have a long way to go. Yeah, well, let, let you know, and again, I like people, like my students, for example, we, we get into a lot of biochemistry and physiology and exercise science and so on even when our focus is on nutrition because if if you understand um the basic science you know you're able to differentiate the flawed 
science from the quality science, so understanding mechanisms makes sense. I get it. But in this area, of course, there's a there's a lot more questions than answers, clearly. Um, sure. So let's let's just get into some sort of little sciencey stuff so we can sound clever for a bit or you can sound clever i'm just going to listen <laughs> um let, let's just quickly overview the metabolism and and some mechanisms of action for for creatine i mean um in fact before we even do that let's just make it absolutely clear where creatine actually comes from well uh from the diet it's almost entirely contained in in meats so meat fish poultry um, a small amount in milk and uh, in the human body synthesized by the, the liver, pancreas and kidneys and also uh, it, it appears that the brain has its own metabolic machinery to synthesize creatine. Uh, the, the largest difference between muscle creatine and, and brain creatine is that there's a complete disconnect between synthesis and storage and utilization in, in muscle creatine. So uh, your muscle creatine is synthesized in the liver, pancreas, and kidneys, and then it's transported to the muscle where it's stored and used to make ATP. We believe that the majority of the creatine in your brain is probably synthesized in the brain. So muscle seems primed to take up creatine from external sources, and the brain seems a bit resistant to that because it relies on its own synthesis. And, and that uh, seems to be the most major hurdle we need to overcome in uh, this growing body of literature on creatine and, and, and cognition. Yeah, that's really, I, I mean, that is really interesting. I, I remember when I was discussing this with Craig Searle, we were also discussing the huge amounts of variations in creatine content um, in people um, and that's influenced by many factors and obviously there's inter individual variability that whole topic I've gotten into many times on this podcast but also depending on where you live um, your habitual diet um, obviously there's an issue between vegans vegetarians and the most prolific of carnivores maybe you could just quickly elucidate that sure. relevance Sure, and, and in some places, creatine is very analogous to uh, dietary carbohydrate and, and muscle glycogen, and, and in other places, there's uh, they have very little in common. So uh, we all have uh, muscle creatine, and, and as you mentioned, there's a large variability between individuals. It doesn't seem like that variability is based on uh, anything. You know, you, uh, I, I know sprinters who just naturally have lower muscle creatine, and I know uh, endurance athletes who just naturally have higher muscle creatine, and, and people who don't exercise and, and their muscle creatine levels are all over the map as well. So it, it, it doesn't seem to be uh, related to your potential to perform or, or the type of uh, exercise you enjoy. And I've yet to see uh, a training study that produced increases in, in muscle creatine the, the same way we believe that training a particular way will in, increase your muscle glycogen storage. So whereas the, the carbohydrate energy system seems much more plastic and uh, influenced by your training and your detraining, 
your your phosphorylcreatine energy system seems uh, to be just the way it is. You were born with it, and, and that's it. And and the only way to alter it is through dietary manipulation. And you know, dietary altering your muscle creatine levels through the diet is going to involve uh, a massive amount of red meat intake per day, probably 10 or 20 pounds. <laughs> so I think the supplement wins out over the, the food here, at least when we're uh, acutely trying to raise muscle levels. Yeah, no, and we're, we're definitely going to get into that stuff in, in a second. But as you were mentioning that, um, I recall that lecture I referred to earlier that Roger Harris gave. And, and I mean, a lot of it was over my head at the time. But the one thing that I really found fascinating was this importance and the relationship that that creatine has had in our evolution um yeah. uh, i mean i'm hopefully i'm not asking you a question you you're not so familiar with but i mean what you know what what is the relevance of that to our evolution well i'm not sure we have the answer to that uh and, and uh, i've discussed this with uh roger as well and uh if you believe that you know, humans evolved from eating large amounts of meat, uh, you know, then certainly nutrients like, uh, well, even like carnosine, but especially creatine, have uh, decreased in our diets uh, over, a, a, you know, a period of evolution. We're eating less creatine than we used to. And, and then even from a, a health perspective, um, Many people are trying to li limit the amount of calories or, or the amount of saturated fat they ingest. Paleo people maybe not included, uh, but you know I think some people are, for health reasons, excluding even more creatine from their diet. And you know there was clearly a period of time where we were eating a lot more creatine. Although it's it's you know dietary records are hard enough to do today, let alone you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But uh, I think meat used to make up a larger portion of the diet, and, and that means creatine did as well. So uh, does this affect physical function uh, is an interesting question. And, uh, you know, if most of your time is spent on the couch with your remote control, uh, probably not. Um, but if you're a physically active person uh, or a mentally active person, uh, it's possible that we've... Uh, this dietary change over the years has, you know, has has had some consequences. Yeah, and you know, of course, when you spend time thinking about what what were the most important survival functions that our ancestors would have had, it would have been that ability to effectively initiate the fight or flight response, and that ability to, you know, defend yourself or your family against an attacker um, or leg it as we say in the UK escape um, from that saber-toothed tiger is heavily in, in, you know is heavily um, dependent on your physical performance so that rapid ability to um, initiate just amazing physical performance in a very short space of time is 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 of course what we're interested in when we talk about sports performance um so so in terms of muscle performance what what is the significance of of creatine well it it has not much to do with uh energy 
storage, I don't think. It has probably a lot to do with rate of energy production. And, and the rate of energy production from uh, creatine is fantastic. It, it's, you know, s several dozen times higher than the rate of energy production from uh, the breakdown of carbohydrate. So uh, in terms of athletic performance, uh, this is absolutely critical, you know. Uh, and uh, I think it, it's probably naive to look at uh, creatine as a, you know an energy system that uh, only enhances the performance of a, you know an isolated maximal sprint. Um, and, and I know when we teach energy metabolism, we always give the example of a, a 100 meter sprint is a, an activity that relies a lot on uh, the creatine phosphoryl creatine energy system, but there are maximal sprints in many types of sports, including uh, at the end of a stage in, in, in the Tour de France. So in, in the world's greatest endurance challenge, you're still sprinting to the finish line. So this energy system is relevant if you are a sprinter, if you are uh, a footballer, if you're a cyclist. Uh, it's you know anything with that high of a rate of energy production. It, it may not be to avoid a predator at this particular time, uh, but it, it could be the difference between winning and losing. And, and I think one of the best examples of that is a paper that's a few years older now, uh, was published from Louise Burke's research team. And uh, it was uh, a soccer performance study. And the, the fascinating thing that they did with this analysis was to convert the distance, the improvement in distance traveled, into uh, a time improvement. So these were elite soccer players, they uh, ingested creatine for six days and, and their sprinting performance improved. Uh, and if you looked at the absolute values, they were you know between 0 0.06 and 0 0.3 seconds. That, that looks quite marginal, but this was between a, a 30 and a 70 centimeter gain in running performance, which is you know the difference between winning and losing in a sprint, but in soccer, if someone gets behind you, it's the difference between you know getting the ball back or 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 not. Yeah, I mean, I you know we've explored the concept of of uh, marginal gains um, mm -hmm. in this podcast, and you know it obviously it it all boils down to what actually you're trying to do and the relevance that that has. That's that whole context thing again. But it it you know I I think that where you're trying to achieve your absolute best, it doesn't matter how marginal it is, all these things are additive, aren't they? And, um... Absolutely. And, and, and I think, uh, again, it's, it's narrow, but it, you know, it, it's too narrow to look at just the one uh, creatine kinase reaction and, and uh, a high rate of ATP resynthesis, particularly if you, if you look at some of the research on, on different patient populations, you know, you mentioned that article published in Amino Acids that, that uh, Bruno Guilano, uh you know, in, in invited me to, to join him and his team on. And, and we have a figure in that paper that lists uh, patient populations uh, and, and uh, pathologies where creatine is most likely beneficial, possibly beneficial, or, or not beneficial. And in some of these conditions, there's not... Uh, an abnormality or a derangement in creatine metabolism. But creatine can help some patient populations by improving 
strength or muscle mass or quality of life or mood or as an antidepressant, even if it's not targeting the specific pathology. So for a nutrient that's only involved in one chemical reaction in the body, it seems to have a very far-reaching uh, effects. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so far-reaching, of course, it, you know, it delves into not just performance in the way in which we understand it, but clinical applications. And um, we're very interested in, you know, training adaptations, obviously, in, in sport and fitness realms. But sure. those training adaptations are very much um, of benefit in the clinical realm. I mean, what, what role does creatine then have in, a, in, in, in as it relates to muscle function in, in a more clinical setting? Why would the more clinical people be interested in this? Well, I, I think that that's an excellent question. And, and the answer is that it's, it's very similar to uh, what we would want to get with an elite athlete. Uh, you know, if you have increased the amount of creatine and phosphocreatine in your muscles, that should make your muscles less fatigable on, uh, you know, every set of every exercise of every workout. So uh, that little extra energy, energy uh, reserve will allow you to increase your training volume and, and to train harder. So if, if exercise training is something that benefits a, a pathology, this is an enhancing exercise training. It's, so it's not unlike uh, carbohydrate in that regard. In some cases, I think there's uh, additional benefits. If, if we look at some of the, the molecular effects uh, of creatine, if we went down to the cellular level, uh, we would find that loading the muscle with creatine, you know, it, it increases the expression of about 270 different genes and um, increases messenger RNA expression of insulin-like growth factor one and a, and a variety of different muscle growth factors like myOD. And uh, I don't want to give people the impression that if you, you know, supplement with creatine, you can go home and sit on the couch and grow big muscles. But in a pathological state where someone is struggling to maintain their muscle or they're actively losing muscle, it seems like loading a muscle with creatine flips a lot of the right switches to create an environment that's more conducive to muscle growth or, or muscle maintenance. And then metabolically allows you to exercise more vigorously. Yeah. You know, sorry, as you were saying that, you're probably familiar with um, this term anabolic resistance. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what role potentially do you think this might have in, in anabolic resistance? I don't know that anyone has ever touched on it because uh, it doesn't uh, appear that the creatine, phosphoryl creatine energy system is blunted in, uh, say, aging muscle or uh, in, in muscle disease. Uh, in some cases, uh, because of low physical activity or, or low meat intake, a lot of these patient populations will have uh, lowered muscle creatine, which means they'll be, have a bigger and better and larger response to the supplement. Yeah. Uh, so they, you know, stand to gain even more from, uh, you know, a, a supplement either in a, a low dose or a high dose. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at this figure from, from the article you mentioned, 
Uh, and, you know, at, at this point in time, there's uh, three very well done studies on creatine supplementation uh, in depression done by probably the, the, the leading group in, in the States. They're, uh, you know, biophysicists, they're brain spectroscopists, and they're practicing psychiatrists. Uh, and they're showing incredibly large improvements in depression with the creatine supplement. And I have to think that if you have someone with uh, some sort of a, a neuromuscular disease, the depression and mood improvements would certainly uh, have a positive impact. Yeah, you, you'll be familiar, um, I'm sure, um, last year in particular, I remember on social media doing the rounds was those sort of images of a, of a pill with exercise written on it as the greatest sort of <laughs> single bit of medicine. Yes. Um, but of course, you know, if we were being really specific about these things, we would want to put exercise, but in the presence of sufficient creatine and, um, you know, all the other nutritional components that would go with it. I mean, it, it, I guess it's one of those, it's one of those conversations, isn't it, where there's not enough, um, I can't believe I'm going to say it again, but there's just not enough context used in, in these conversations. Absolutely. You know, I think if we're uh, discussing a strength and power athlete or a frail elder, we're probably looking at very different situations in terms of habitual dietary intake uh, and uh, training volumes and, and you know, uh, needs. Uh, and so I think, as you always say, context is, is in, incredibly important. Uh, you know, we, we have, uh, as I've said, a, a relatively inexpensive nutrient that has an excellent safety profile, and, and it appears to be able to uh, augment uh, muscular and, and, and cognitive uh, processes. Uh, I, I think we need to take a, a very close look at this nutrient, but only if we place it in the proper context. Yeah. So also, uh, and I've read in some of the papers you've been involved in, and I've read in some other works uh, when I was doing some research in this area, um, that there's some very interesting influences that creatine has on um, the way muscle uses uh, carbohydrate, of course. And one area of interest is this whole insulin resistance conversation that, that, that we could have and things like GLUT4 transporters and, 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 and whatnot. What, I mean, what, what is the role that creatine appears to have in, in that situation? Well, I think uh, Bruno Guolano has a, a, a few papers uh, that are very interesting on creatine and carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, first, he, he's demonstrated uh, safety in, in, in diabetics, which I think is incredibly important uh, you know, safety studies are, are not terribly glamorous. They, they tend to uh, require a lot of work and a lot of financial investment, and, and they don't get a lot of, of press. But uh, his work on, in, in diabetics, I think, is very, very valuable in terms of safety. And, you know, we have some evidence of, uh, you know, uh, increasing muscle creatine levels through supplementation, uh, increasing GLUT4 levels, uh, possibly improving carbohydrate metabolism. I, I think there's a connection there that's been largely unexplored. You know, and, and uh, I, I think this matters for, for athletes and patient populations as well. Uh, uh, there's uh, half a dozen papers that show that the co-ingestion of creatine and carbohydrate 
potentially increases the amount of carbohydrate you can store in your muscles. So for, for an athlete, uh, you know, coming down to uh, uh, an important athletic event, uh, this is uh, an important consideration. I, I don't think we're at the point where we would say that creatine is a therapy for uh, diabetes, um, you know, not compared to exercise and, and, and proper weight maintenance. But I think if creatine actually helps, main, you know, with exercise, uh, then I, I see uh, an, an important relationship there that needs to be explored. Yeah, and and I think, as I said earlier, you know, the reason why these mechanistic type of conversations are important is because when you start to think of the bigger picture, particularly when you think about, you know, us as human beings, I mean, whether you're an athlete or a patient, we're still human beings. Uh, right. And again, another one of my sort of catchphrases is, is you know, we don't eat... We don't eat carbohydrate. We don't eat creatine. We don't eat protein. We eat food that contains these things. And and one of the problems, as I see it, with particularly with sports nutrition, is our focus is always on those sort of compartmentalized aspects um, from food that we then isolate into specific supplements. And and people get obsessed with getting their carbs in or get obsessed with hitting this macro over that macro. But actually, if, if, if we were to prioritize that food first approach, you know, the, the, you know, the, the benefits are multiple um, um, just by virtue of how one thing has a positive impact on another. Um, isn't that right? Yes. And, and I think what's most interesting about creatine is that it tends to get trapped inside your muscles. So... Uh, once you achieve uh, an elevated muscle creatine level, uh, again, through the diet or through supplementation, you really require very little creatine to maintain those elevated levels. And, and I like the fact that th this turns creatine back into, um, you know, less of a high-dose sports supplement and, and more of just uh, a, a nutrient that we're trying to get adequate amounts of in our diet, you know, so it's it's more like your daily dose of vitamin C than, than it is, you know, any sort of, a, you know, a high dose sports supplement. So once you get to those elevated levels, there's very little effort required to keep those elevated levels. Uh, and then as we've discussed, the, the benefits on muscle, the benefits on, on nervous tissue as well uh, appear to be uh, very important across uh, a huge range of, of individuals. Yeah, I, I, you know, and as you're saying that, you also make me think of this this concept that is sometimes discussed but not often enough and sometimes it's abused, is the idea of responders and non-responders. Yeah. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on this idea of responders and non-responders and, and creatine? Well, you know... <laughs> There are responders and non-responders, if you like those terms, to uh, drugs, to medications, uh, to dietary changes, and, and, and I would say there are probably low and high responders e even to exercise. You know, some people gain muscle rapidly, some people uh, struggle to, to, to gain muscle. So, you know, that sort of variability is, is behind every bit of research that we do. Uh, I think the, the bigger issue is, are we using the, the proper tests, uh, and can these tests detect 
you know, uh, an improvement even across the, the low responder, high responder spectrum. Because, you know, if, if someone increases their muscle creatine level uh, 10%, uh, that doesn't mean they get no benefit. Uh, it, it means we may not be able to detect a benefit uh, unless they have, a, you know, a 30% in, in improvement. Um, I think, you know, some people are born with naturally very high creatine levels, but even those people stand to receive some benefit, uh, whether we would call them low responders or not. Uh, they definitely would benefit from adding some creatine to their diet, and and we may not be able to detect it in the laboratory setting. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm pleased you tackled that that way. I I sort of find the whole responder non-responder thing drives me nuts. <laughs> but um, it, you know, I I guess where I want to go with this is there's you know clearly all sorts of benefits we're starting to discover um, about creatine. You know, brain function, obviously. Right. There's a, there's a lot there we could we could just go on um, about the potential um, benefits of that. Obviously, performance. There's all sorts of. I mean, there's hundreds of clinical um, and sports science studies on on creatine, isn't there? I mean, hundred. I mean, I don't I don't even know how many there are, but it, it numbers in, in the hundreds, and, and I'm I'm happy to say that uh, you know the the number of studies in patient populations. Uh, has been increasing o over the past several years. So we're exploring, uh, you know, a whole host of different pathologies. I think the probably the most exciting research right now, um, in addition to the depression work and the, the cognitive work, uh, has to do with the potential role of, of creatine as a protective nutrient for traumatic brain injury, like a concussion. And there's uh, one team, uh, you can look up the paper, it's from uh, Turner and colleagues, who is actually investigating the effects of creatine uh, during oxygen deprivation. And, and this is a, a human model, not a laboratory model or an, an animal model, excuse me. Uh, and they're showing real benefits of, of creatine uh, in an oxygen-deprived state, which I think is very much analogous to uh, a traumatic brain injury. And there's also a body of work on uh, animal models where creatine has also been shown to be protective in, in traumatic brain injury. So um, there's a couple of things we should discuss um, because it would be wrong for us not to, and one of which is the safety profile. There's all sorts of myths um, sure. that you hear about that, and then um, we definitely need to discuss, um, you know, uh, 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 the actual supplementation side of this, and, and you know what to take and so on. But but safety, I mean, you know, I've, in my own practice, I've definitely had a few people saying, oh, you know, I've I've heard that that's bad for my kidneys, or isn't that a steroid or something? I mean, could, could you quickly just tell us about the myths? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think the big three would be uh, renal dysfunction, uh, rhabdomyolysis, muscle damage, and then uh, some sort of hydration-related injury. So uh, if we were to start with the, the myth number one, if we went with the, the renal effects, um, if, if this is a, you know, this is a never-ending battle here. Hmm. But uh, let me say that there are close to 30 studies that have uh, assessed renal function during creatine supplementation. And... 
Um, I think a dozen have found no increase in serum creatinine. Uh, I think uh, about eight of them found small increases in serum creatinine that stayed within the normal range, which you would also see if you ate a hamburger. Uh, I think um, maybe two studies have showed that uh, creatine ingestion can get uh, serum creatinine levels a bit out of the normal range, but in those studies, that wasn't different than the controls. So just diet and life can increase your creatinine levels that much. I think there's a half a dozen or, or, or seven studies that used serum and urine creatinine to show no stress on, on, on the kidneys. But, you know, if we look at some of the work coming out of Bruno Golano's team in Brazil, they've used uh, the most sophisticated measures uh, to assess kidney function, and, and they've shown no effect. So we're, we're talking about several dozen papers here that have covered various populations, um, patient populations, young healthy athletes, diabetics, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of papers if you, excuse me, volunteers if you combine these papers, and, and there just doesn't appear to be anything there. Now, there are a few case studies on creatine and renal function, and, you know, I, I would say a case study is probably the weakest type of science, uh, but that doesn't mean we should ignore them. But if you, if you look at these uh, this handful of case studies that have uh, found impaired renal function in individuals ingesting creatine, they're all uh, confounded by the use of other drugs, drugs plus prior disease, massive doses of anabolic steroids, uh, and, and things like that. So uh, we combine the research with the tens of thousands of individuals using this supplement uh, and, you know, post-marketing surveillance, and, and there, there really doesn't seem to be anything there in terms of renal dysfunction. Not that I can detect. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, though, that how these, I mean, you see journalists um, writing stuff, and it just, oh. Sure, and, and this is a large, very large body of research on creatine and the kidney. Uh, the area that I think is even more abused in, in the media is uh, the direct of, uh, effects of creatine on, on skeletal muscle breakdown. You know, could creatine be driving uh, something like exertional rhabdomyolysis? And again, <laughs> there, I think there are now 15 studies that have measured everything from resting markers of muscle damage to... Um, the, effect, the effects of creatine supplements on muscle damage markers following high force eccentric exercise, following um, it, you know, very stressful sprinting, stressful endurance challenging, challenges, uh, resistance training workouts. And, and out of these 15 studies, there's not a single study that has shown that creatine exacerbates muscle damage. And you know, even in the most intense uh, laboratory models of, of where we induce muscle damage, uh, when you load people with creatine, it doesn't appear to have any negative effects. And there's actually a couple of studies that show that under the stress of heavy exercise, um, creatine actually augments the recovery of strength, uh, you know, reduces um, delayed onset muscle soreness, and, and in the endurance and sprinting studies, uh, really decreases markers of inflammation. So 
uh, it's not doing anything wrong that we can detect and may actually be helping skeletal muscle recovery. Yeah, well, clearly the people that are saying this stuff have low levels of creatine, which accounts for their poor brain function, doesn't it? You <laughs> um, so, said that, not me. Yeah, yeah, well, I can see, yeah, I'm not even going there. So, well, it's, a, it's a source of frustration because, you know, some of us are, are looking at creatine supplementation in real vulnerable patient populations, like, like children with muscular dystrophy, and the moment the news jumps on a story and they're capable of misinforming millions of people in, in a single day. And, you know, the, the scientist is limited to whatever they published in some, you know, neuroscience journal. And, and it's a long road back to get trust in patients and, and trust in parents and coaches uh, because, you know, those are the people who don't see the research studies. Yeah, I, I, I think we're all listening and we can feel your pain, Eric. <laughs> we can feel your pain. Um, so let's also, because we're coming to the end here, that I, this is one of these topics that it's funny. We said at the beginning, or you said at the beginning, it, someone would probably imagine they could only have a five-minute conversation about this and we're already coming up to an hour. It's amazing. Um, but um, folks, are, uh, uh, whether this is for themselves personally or with their um, athletes or clients that they're working with, are going to want to consider um, using and supplementing creatine. Um, so before we discuss that, we should obviously mention the types of creatine that's out okay. there. So uh, um, obviously uh, the bulk of this research is being done on one type of creatine um, right. and there's all sorts of myths about other types. Yeah, and, and this is also, you know, uh, gets my blood pressure up a little bit because it's a, a source of frustration. You know, the majority of the research, as you said, is on creatine monohydrate, nearly all of it. And, and the important message to get to people is that creatine monohydrate is absorbed nearly 100%, greater than 99% absorption. So any product that is marketed under the, the headline of increased absorption, first of all, they probably don't have any data. It's just a marketing sales pitch. But how does one improve upon 100% absorption? <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, and yet, there's at least two dozen different formulations of creatine on the market. Most of them are um, advertising themselves as you know increased absorption. Uh, and you know, or you need to take dramatically less, and and uh, I don't see any evidence, you know, of the tiny number of studies. I don't see any evidence that these products are better than monohydrate, um, and and certainly they have no safety data, and monohydrate has quite a lot of safety data uh, to back up, you know, the the research. So it. it it saddens me that you know I could get online right now and, and have my choice of about two dozen creatines, but I'll tell my students and your listeners uh, there's there's no reason to, to stray from monohydrate. That's where the research on safety is. That's where the research on efficacy is. And and you know some of these products um, uh, they're you know incredibly expensive, many of them. But at least one of these products is actually a procreatinin supplement. You know, it doesn't even increase your muscle creatine levels. Uh, it actually increases the level of creatinine in your body. That's not what we wanted. <laughs> no, 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 no. Is it worth also thinking about where the creatine monohydrate actually comes from? 
Well, there used to be several laboratories in the world that manufactured creatine monohydrate, and, and where many of them have, have stopped. Uh, there were some price wars and things like that. Um, I, I think it's probably worth it to read the back of your supplement and see if it says, you know, manufactured by or manufactured for. And, and if it says manufactured for, uh, find out who manufactured it for them and, and uh, trace it back to the company. You can, uh, everybody's online, you can contact the manufacturer and ask for a, a certificate uh, of authenticity. You know, I know some of your listeners probably have um, drug tests to deal with with their sporting organization. You, you obviously want a dietary supplement that, that's, you know, safe from the perspective of contaminants, but you also want it to be safe from the perspective of contaminants that could flunk you out of uh, you know, a, a sport with a positive drug test. Yeah, and it, it's it's an issue, uh, but I think there are you know you know some there, there's at least one good manufacturer out there, uh, and you know you should demand uh, that they supply a, a certificate of analysis in terms of the quality control of their product. Actually, Eric, you give me a great idea for another podcast. I'm going to get someone on who's an expert on. Uh, doping and contamination and all this stuff because uh, I think that would be a great topic uh, to get into so thank, thanks for that I'm going to claim it as my idea <laughs> um, so okay right so we, 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 we've gotten to the point where we know we want to supplement with creatine now do, do we just take it is there some sort of dosing protocol um, does it even matter like you know perhaps you could just help us understand Sure. I, I think, uh, you know, you could do a low dose or a high dose strategy. And, and uh, because, uh, again, this is much like dietary carbohydrate and muscle glycogen, where we're trying to uh, fill a tank and maybe top off the gas tank here. Uh, if you're in a hurry, you could take about 20 grams per day for five days. If you're not that much of a hurry, you could take between three and five grams per day for about a month and, and I think your muscle levels would increase to uh, the exact same place. There is a ceiling on how much creatine you can get into your muscles, much the same as how much glycogen you can get into your muscles. You know, for very small or, or very large athletes, those levels might not fit perfectly. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if you wanted to adjust the loading dose for your body weight, uh, you could maybe maybe multiply your your body weight in kilograms by 0.3 grams uh, of creatine. So 0.3 grams um, per kilogram of body weight per day for five days, and and you'll find that it, it you wind up getting to about 20 or 25 grams per day. Uh, I think that is more than enough. You know, we we have some data where uh, you know we demonstrated that at 20 grams per day. By day three or four of the supplement protocol, about 10 grams per day is simply coming out in the urine. So uh, I think uh, 20 grams per day for five days works for most people. I think three to five grams per day for a month also works for most people. And, you know, I, I think uh, for patient populations or older adults, the, the low dose protocol, longer term protocol might be, um, you know, uh, less of a burden. And, and, and maybe a better option. Great. 
So listen, Eric, I, I've got a thing we could talk for at least another hour about this stuff, but um, we better uh, bring this to an end. Um, so folks can learn more about um, what we're talking about, I'll make sure that I uh, put some uh, references uh, of papers and um, sure. some specific papers on uh, the, the page for this podcast at guruperformance.com under podcasts uh, under episode 73. But I um, 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 it, obviously they're going to want to learn more about you as well. So how, how do they find out more about you? I'll link to you obviously from the page, but for listeners. Okay. They can uh, follow follow me on, on Twitter, and I, I think that's a good way to get in touch with me and, and figure out what I'm doing and, and what I'm thinking about. Uh, that's probably the best way for us all to get connected. Great. And what's your Twitter handle? It, it's uh, at Eric Rawson, PhD. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, um, also, I know folks, uh, some of them um, who are closer to your neck of the woods will want to come learn from you. So how, did, how do they find out more about the programs that you teach on? They can uh, go to the website at Bloomsburg University and, and uh, find my contact information. We have uh, undergraduate and graduate programs in exercise science. Uh, I'm also a, a, a member of the American College of Sports Medicine. So uh, if you're at an ACSM meeting, I'm sure I will be there as well. Please come up and introduce yourself. Great. Yeah. And you were recently speaking here in the UK at the um, International Sports and Exercise Nutrition Conference. It was uh, my honor to come and, and present at the ISENC conference. I, I got to talk a, a bit about creatine, uh, but also uh, a bit about uh, social media uh, for sports scientists and sport nutritionists, how do you use social media to your advantage for uh, a professional sport nutrition or sport scientist? No, oh, brilliant. So is that is that where we're gonna have pictures of you and uh, and your six pack and um, and a well tanned physique, Eric, on your Twitter picture? At the moment, it's looking more like a keg than a six pack. Still <laughs> <laughs> suffering from the winter holidays. Yes. But by the time the ACSM National Conference rolls around in Boston, I'll see if I can bring a six-pack with me. Brilliant. Well, I assume you'll be taking your creatine then at the same time. Uh, if, well, if I want to be on my game. There you talk. go. There you go. <laughs> Listen, Eric, uh, I, I know um, the listeners will be extremely appreciative for you sharing your time with us and, and um, this fascinating conversation we've had about creatine. Um, obviously, this podcast and many others, including the episode from October 2014 by Craig Sale on a similar topic, um, can be found under podcasts at guruperformance.com under either our clinical education section. If you want to learn more about this stuff from anywhere in the world and actually gain a postgraduate qualification, you can undertake the ISSN uh, diploma in applied sports and exercise nutrition. You can learn about that at issndiploma.com or if you want to come and study um, with me at Middlesex University and gain an MSc in uh, Sports and Exercise Nutrition you can learn more about that at Middlesex University's website and or via guruperformance.com so um, that brings this episode to the end I of course am Laurel Bannock and once again thank you Eric thank you my pleasure okay take care